0: Hello, and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a movie, a a, a comic book and its film adaptation. I'm joined today by David. How are you today, David? Oh, I'm good. Something's wrong with my car and I don't know what, which is (laughs) shocking because I'm such a car guy that's what is that I don't know if people who know me probably are busting a gut right now sure the idea of me with a little busting oil something. smudge on my cheek anyways we're here today to discuss <laughs> not a comic but a film. Have, we, have the two of us discussed a movie before? I yes, forget. we've discussed we several movies. Oh, yes, of course. We've discussed some of our Jan's <laughs> movies. Of course, of course. Which of is, course. I was thinking about those movies quite a bit because I feel that Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the film which we are discussing, an epic of epic epicness. I wanted to say an epic so epic. Oh, darn. This. Sorry. Maybe next episode. Um, <laughs> I feel that it has some real. Uh, chicken with plums sort of like visual there's just well we can we can talk about it later but there's something about like especially because a lot of these scenes take place at night um Mm -hmm. and a a lot of them i'm like is this does this look weird because that's just like kind of the heightened um like stylization that he's doing or are these like indoor shots that are being like masked as outdoor. And I know they had like issues with the snow, which like every movie that ever took place in winter, they're like, we need to find snow. Um, and I know from like reading some of O'Malley's like conversations about it, that they often used CGI to mask. So I'm like, is that what is like kind of registering that makes this all look very weird? Is it the like deliberate sort of visual sheen that's on it from right? I'm, I'm not sure what, but there were several points Where I was just like, this looks a lot to me like chicken with plums. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I found out that they reshot the ending, I was like, oh, it does kind of feel like there's like a weird, like, something about Mm -hmm. it that the whole the whole ending is quite strange where it feels extremely obvious that it was rewritten from a version where he gets back together with knives (laughs) yes we can talk (laughs) like it has a real alternate ending vibe (laughs) yes absolutely where it's like okay here's the ending of the movie (laughs) and it's like but wait what if it was different um we can discuss that certainly we will get to it but of course as you mentioned we're discussing Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the twenty ten, epic epic epicness. <laughs> 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 the twenty ten romantic action comedy film, as it is described on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright and Michael Bacall, who you of course know from writing Project X. Mm-hmm, of course, have you ever seen Project X? No, I, that's the one where the poster is that dude totally passed out, right? He's wasted. The He's party was epic, out. though
1: he also what
0: he did he he, did he do the jump streets is that yes he wrote both the jump streets and he is allegedly writing uh, a weird science reboot seems problematic and a running man reboot so (laughs) two movies that will definitely come out (laughs) uh yes i'll catch them in a double feature with brian k vaughn's gundam movie uh and i can't (laughs) can't wait uh, Jordan Bill Robert Roberts, through. Metal dear Solid. Yeah. <laughs> Joss Whedon's Batgirl, no doubt. Just behind. Uh huh. Of course, shot by Bill Poop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought it was Dick Poop. Though. It is Dick Poop, but his name is Bill Pope. Uh, yes. dick pope's name is dick pope uh-huh. so he's bill Pope by the <laughs> bill transitive pope. property now i i know i know bill pope from other things but i don't know what those other things are he is a frequent edgar wright collaborator he's a wachowski's collaborator okay. he shot the matrix okay. he shot yeah, that. that's Spider-Man probably too. what i'm thinking of oh he shot all the Matrix. Oh, spider-man matrices. to my number one favorite movie of all time team america that we just discussed <laughs> at some length <laughs> kind we kind did there's a rent parody in that movie <laughs> This is already way off. Wow, he, wrote, he shot two of my favorite movies of 2019. John the, Kid the, Book <laughs> the Kid Who Would Be King. Shut up. The Kid Who Would Be King and Alita Battle Angel. Mm. And he shot Shang-Chi. Uh, a lot going on for Bill Payne. Yeah, he's keeping busy. Good for him. Credit um, as William Pope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did see that as well. Uh, that's funny. He's graduated. Starring Michael Sarah, Mary Elizabeth Wynn. I mean, just an. Unbelievably stacked cast. Great. Cast. At the time and in retrospect, but Michael Sarah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, um, my friend who I was watching the movie with, did comment that Michael Sarah and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, that she looks like Michael Sarah after two years of HRT. <laughs> <laughs> which once you look at them side by side really hits up. well isn't isn't michael Sarah's famous gender swap the one of the the sisters from downton abbey i don't know anything. she about looks that. like one of the daughter or he looks like one of the daughters uh, on downton abbey i feel famously um i was laughing looking at the cast list because with i obviously mary elizabeth winstead I think, is clearly American. Chris Evans, clearly American. Kieran Culkin, because of, you know, having a big show business family, you would never assume was not American. But with Michael Sarah being, like, prominently Canadian, I feel like the rest of the cast, I was running down and I was like, are they Canadian <laughs> for like every single person? And it's like, uh, there's a good number of them are, but, but I feel like they really like Anna Kendrick feels like a real easy, could like, is she Canadian? Brandon Jason Routh was Shortsman one where me. I was like, Brandon Routh is Canadian. Surely and I clicked <laughs> through and he wasn't. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> but yeah, Jason Schwartzman also, also feels like the kind of guy who it's like, yeah, he could, I would believe it. Yeah. Lots of Canadian energy pervading this movie. Um, of course made by a british director uh where should we start here because Boy, there's I, a lot i have a lot of <laughs> i don't know because i have a lot of places that i would like to hit on and a lot of thoughts to share um but actually i no, i do know where i want to start which is with the brian Lee O'Malley of it all because he is not Credited per se on this movie, except as based on the Oni Press graphic novels by Brian Leo'Malley O'Malley. A weird credit in and of itself, <laughs> based on the Oni right. Press graphic novels. I was, I immediately was like, the answer I don't think is out there, but I must know why it's built in that way. Um I did look into it a bit and I know that Oni Press kind of like initiated the adaptation right. process. So I'm sure that was kind of part of the it was, it was the, I don't know. At some point somebody must have just been like, "Oh, you know, it was kind of our idea." Right. Like, right, Okay, we'll say the Oni Press graphic novels. Um but other than that, like based on credit, he is not credited, but he was or he seems to have been extremely involved at, like, every stage of the production. Well, I mean, like, so many of the, like, lines and, like, especially the jokes are, mm-hmm. like, ripped wholesale from the book. So, yeah. like, it's it's much, in some ways, it is a weird non-adaptation of the source material. But then, especially in terms of the dialogue, it feels like such a straight rip of the dialogue in a lot of places that Mm -hmm. it is weird that he is not at least credit in some way. Well, it's also like the simultaneous production of it is also kind of weird because the film was in development for so long and because he was still writing the books as they were also working on the script. So like I saw in some places that he was like, I'm trying hard as hard as possible to not let the movie like influence the books at mm-hmm. all. But I also saw other spots where he was like, yeah, I took that line like or this or that line or this or that joke from the movie. And that, but then also like they talk pretty frequently about him doing like punch up and polish and like contributing during the writing process a fair bit, and like I know he and it's like in a weird zone too where it's like he didn't have decision making on casting, but Wright like showed him everybody's casting tapes and was like looking for his blessing, um. So it's it, I was yeah I was just very curious about how like. I feel like normally the experience for the creator of the original proce- uh, property in an adaptation is either like they are doing everything and like, you know, are are heavily involved um, in sort of like the JK Rowling type mold, or it like gets completely taken away from them. And yeah. it, whether it's good or bad, they're just kind of like, uh, I, I didn't really have anything to do with it. They wrote me the check and, and then like that was kind of the last I heard about it until it came out. Yeah, and there is a lot of obviously weirdness with like the way that screenwriting gets credited. And mm-hmm. it's like there's uh, like the WGA, and like this weirdly like bumps up against the WGA strike. Like, oh, yeah. I was reading that like the first or like one of the drafts was like submitted at like midnight before the writers killed one on strike or whatever. Uh, so there's a lot of that uh, stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start with Edgar Wright? Because he is maybe the place to start, because this is, like, it is very, I think more than it is a, like, Scott Pilgrim adaptation, it is, like, an Edgar Wright movie, first and foremost, is that fair to say? Yeah, I would, I would say that, because I I feel like it's an Edgar Wright movie with, like, a Scott Pilgrim, like, accoutrement. (laughs) or like just that you can you can very much tell that when he got involved it was like only when volume one came out because when you're looking at the movie volume one is like by far the most heavily adapted volume in terms of like how it how how closely it adheres Mm -hmm. and then after that it's it starts to feel like fairly divorced apart from kind of like the the central conceit and some of the major themes and, and major story beats but yeah go on well, just that even in terms of the, like, the things it's drawing from, because, you know, we've talked about the ways in which Scott Pilgrim obviously draws from a ton of different, uh, like, types of media in order to sort of create its world and, like, create that that patina. Mm-hmm. But it does really feel like it's, like, the places where Edgar Wright's interests intersected with uh, Brian Lee Amally's interests are, like, the ones that he harps on more. Like, I think we talked about it in an earlier episode, like, This is much more video game forward, especially, especially at the beginning of the movie than it is like, than it is in the comics. Because, you know, it's still a music forward movie. Like, there's a lot of musical elements to it. But, like, when you start with the 8 bit universal logo, there's, like, Mm -hmm. much more, it's much more clear of a mission statement than, like, you ever really see from a a video game perspective in the comics yeah and even just like the amount of like playing of video games which i feel like so there's there's scenes in the book where people are playing video games but i feel like they're mostly flashbacks like i don't know that we ever see scott playing a video game like guess it's like psp right right in the later volumes that uh, young neil gave him for two hundred dollars um but but like it's fairly minimal whereas in this like young neil is constantly playing on a ds like he goes to the arcade please please, a ds light um he goes to the arcade with knives and plays that like dance dance revolution slash ninja gaiden game um like there's just like a lot more playing of video games too which is like I don't think like video games are a big part of the aesthetic of Scott Pilgrim but just I, I yeah I don't know it just stood out to me I was like wow they play a lot of video games in this in a way that like they never do in the book yeah and like it's just in the books they feel much more like I guess I guess you would say that they're musicians first because it is like their occupation to some extent but like they mm-hmm. it feels like they're much more sort of like well round in the way that like we are i would say like even though this <laughs> podcast is about comics like we're into comics we're into music we're into games we're into movies like we have interests and in, we like we have our fingers and all those pies and it feels like the this movie is more like video games first music second and then like I don't even really know what because I don't see as much like in in the action to some extent, but I don't see a lot of like the anime manga influence as much in this movie. No, yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, That that component of it is kind of gone. And like, yeah, it's it's funny to say that the music is secondary because I agree that like in terms of what people sort of think about with Scott Pilgrim, that is the correct order. And that is sort of the order where they get emphasized in the movie too. But then I'm thinking about it and I'm like, the music stuff was probably so much more like work than the video games. So into music, like he goes on to make baby driver, which is like such like, the most music it, forward like, is movie, a musical, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the most music forward movie you can ever imagine. Yeah, but but even just like I, I, there's lots of like stuff you can find out there about how difficult and expensive some of the effects were, and that's part of the video game aesthetic too. But th- mm. then I'm just like, yeah, but that's like kind of part of making an effects heavy movie, whereas like going out and getting like Beck and Metric to custom write you songs and like getting all the mus- the actors to like learn their instruments and record songs and like perform them and stuff is like so much more work than you would normally have in a movie, even one that is like about musicians. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely the Edgar Wright thing as well, that like he has a vested interest in getting the, I wouldn't even say getting the music right, because, like, he doesn't, I don't think, have this, obviously is not, like, versed in the Canadian indie rock scene in the Mm -hmm. early 2000s, even though, like, (laughs) you read about how Brian Lee O'Malley was, like, showing him bands and stuff, but, like, we know Edgar Wright has a clearly defined musical taste and, like, a very eclectic musical taste, and so I imagine it's more coming from him than it is from anything he's just like reading in the book and so in some ways that's great that like someone cares about the music and obviously you know this movie has some <laughs> really great songs like very memorable songs obviously the black sheep scene i think mm-hmm. people remember a lot like even to this garbage day garbage truck <laughs> i really like
1: garbage, <laughs> garbage truck. truck is a I,
0: great song <laughs> okay here's here's an interesting question is sex bomb a good band um yeah i I like their sound (laughs) you're talking like are they a good band objectively or are they a good band in universe i think they're a perfectly good band in universe i think like you know they are sort of like they're like the high level low level band i guess right like they're they're sort of like big within their scene (laughs) right right like like they're never they're never gonna like necessarily get like a big record deal but when they like indie produce their record with joseph the like record launch party is going to be like a fairly big show that like 150 or 200 people are at and everyone there is like into them they're not just like there yeah they're like Arkells circa like michigan left (laughs) kind of level no even then i think Arkells were too big to be sex buff on because they had like some bona fide radio hits kind of you know, well, yeah, I guess like Sex bob is not going to have a song get played during like hockey night in Canada. No. But but in terms of like are they objectively good? Are their songs I, good is what I'm asking. Like, yes. Like they were they were written by musicians who are more successful than Sex bob will well, sure. would ever be and so like I think they are deliberately rough um, and, like, yeah, but yeah a I little undercooked, I, I would yeah. say. And, I mean, part of the joke of them in the book is that their songs are all sort of, like, what, what is this about? Like, the just even the names of, this, like, herself the elf is the one I always think of where I'm like, what possibly can that be? And I've known like, local, like, amateur professional musicians mm. who, you know, who, like, do do the whole, like, Joseph-style album recording and do, like, our, an album launch party and show and all that kind of thing. And, like, those are the kinds of songs that they would sort of write. But I think that, yeah, Sex Bob, um, it's It's deliberately sort of aping that lo-fi sound. And I think especially, like, running the acoustic guitar through a distortion pedal, which is, like, a very indie thing of that era like for some i thought death from above 1979 was involved in the music side of this movie for some reason and i think it's literally just because i was like well they do like distorted acoustic guitar all the time so so i think that because they've kind of aped that sound it definitely sounds a little rough and you know i like i don't think that any of the actors would be like singers first and foremost so like obviously the vocals are a little rough compared to what a professional musician would do but yeah i think like i mean garbage truck good song (laughs) sure okay let's let's finish up edgar Wright, and then i want to talk about the cast sure Um, well well i was gonna ask have you seen spaced i've seen like 10 episodes of space like i was like i'm gonna watch this and i watched like 10 episodes and i just sort of like fell off but because that was the thing that i saw a lot of people be like oh well you know in scott pilgrim he's got like the budget to do the kinds of things that in spaced he was sort of like playing with but i i think i've seen like some clips of spaced but never anything that i would be like oh that's very scott pilgrim yeah not really the thing in spaced is more like it's a similar thing where the characters themselves are like very into pop culture especially like i feel like i remember them being like big like star wars star trek kind of fans Mm -hmm. and so he would do i you know i'm sort of remembering a couple of specific scenes from the episodes i watched where it's like he is aping of like visual style very directly and like sort of doing an homage to movies in the same way that like community did in the first couple of seasons where like there'll be a sequence where it's played straight but is funny because it's like a low rent version of like (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know they're doing their like great escape or their star wars or whatever and so maybe that is where that's coming from that's not really what they do in this movie like there aren't really a lot of like direct homages to movies in that way Mm mm-hmm But yeah, so I I saw that referenced and that was something that he did. He was directing early on in his career and I think is also the origin of like his partnerships with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, question mark? Yes, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are both in that show for sure. Simon Pegg is like the lead with another actress who I don't remember their name, but... And I I think they were also the writers, Simon Pegg and... um, I do know her name. I was just looking at it. Jessica Stevenson. Sure. Whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so he did that very early on. And then he also, so Fistful of Fingers was his first movie. Yeah, that's like not a movie. It's like yeah, 4 I've never, long I've never seen it. I've never heard anything really about it other than that was his first movie. Yeah. It's just like a movie he made that he was like, I want to make a movie. And right. it's like really short or something. So and then he made Shaun of the Dead and it was like while he was in post production on Shaun of the Dead that he got like a review copy, an advanced review copy of Scott Pilgrim. And then after it came out and Oni Press was like, we would like to do a movie out of this. He was like attached fairly early because he had kind of been on the bandwagon pretty early and then when they started looking for people he kind of threw his name in but that was like 2004 and the movie doesn't come out until 2010 so he does hot fuzz between like getting attached and when the movie actually happens yeah it definitely feels like this is a time when he sort of becomes a guy who gets attached to things like especially like i mean like he he writes a lot of stuff or like works on a lot of stuff i know but, yeah, like, you know, obviously Ant-Man, I think, like, he was working on Ant-Man around the same time that he was working on this movie. And then, obviously, like, I think Baby Driver is, like, a script that he's had for a while or, like, more or less had for a while. Um, But, yeah, it's... He is definitely in an interesting position. Like, I think by the time this movie comes out, he is, like, a big name among, like that kind of scene you know right like i feel like you know so and like ryan johnson i feel like was in a similar place where it's like the sort of maybe like post tarantino like culture pop right. culture nerd kind indie of filmmaking. slash like indie darling yeah 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 i remember like around like in the early like phase one stage of the mcu when after every single movie the discourse was like well and next they've got to do edgar wright's ant-man because he's been working on that like five ever and uh, and uh, yeah it always just seemed crazy to me i was like there's no way that they're gonna do ant-man as their like next movie at this stage when because that was even like still at the point where it was like the suggestion that Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor were all going to be in a movie together, I was like, the the whole tone around it was kind of like, well, oh, that's never actually going to happen, is it? Or like, if it happens, it'll be like a, a one-off and then they, they, they'll they kind of like, they have to quit when they're ahead at that point, right? Right. <laughs> like, it seemed crazy. And so the idea that like, while they're still trying to establish Those like three characters who both like in and out of universe are so much the foundation of like the Avengers and the popularity of the Avengers that they would like detour and do Ant Man who is like a punchline unto himself and has been treated as such, you know, in comics and in the movies and like you know it it is funny like the idea of Ant Man is just funny and emblematic of a lot of sort of like the the like weirdness of superheroes i think in a lot of ways and so oh and that's i think that the cognizance of that is why you get edgar Wright to make that movie because it's like he is good at like doing this sort of like genre pastiche so it's like it's a heist movie but like it's a tiny little guy and like that's what's funny about it right and and i'm sure part of what appealed to him about it as well was that it was like well i'm not going to do captain america When Ant-Man is on the table. (laughs) Right, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, It is crazy that the first, the the two phase two introduction movies, so it's like, this is a weird, this is a detour, but (laughs) the first, they do like Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, Captain America. These all make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And then phase two, like you have Avengers, and then phase two is Iron Man 3, Thor 2, Captain America 2, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that was that Avengers was Two, Ant Man. <laughs> like <laughs> those are those are the two characters that you chose, to, like introduce and have solo movies in Phase Two, and then Phase Three is Doctor Strange, Spider Man, and Black Panther. Who are like all three of those are definitely characters you think would have introductions in a movie before the guardians of the galaxy well i I, I, like yeah it just again it speaks to how much sort of like the idea of the superhero movie i think has changed since those like early days because like i said not that i was like following the industry so closely at that time but like in 2010 like the idea of an avengers movie i was still kind of like they're not actually gonna do that it was just like an easter egg at the end of iron man and so when they announced Guardians of the Galaxy it was kind of like, that's a weird pick but they had sort of exhausted all of the obvious choices that they still had the rights to because obviously like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four and X-Men were all off the table and those are all huge properties. Daredevil was kind of like, would, would have been a next sort of logical choice but I think there was a rights issue there too. They weren't allowed to make a Hulk movie without Universal's involvement and they were kind of not really playing ball in that way anymore. So when they announced Guardians of the galaxy like yeah it was weird but like i think it would have been just as crazy to me if they were like and for our next movie black panther i would have been like yeah whoa really like that like we're getting deep in the deep in the the the, like bag here and now we're at the point where the cuts are so deep that it's like harry styles as as like star fox (laughs) right yeah like that's that's a whole we're at a whole like new level of deep cuts as far as pulling from different corners of the the universe and characters that still have yet to be established but um yeah so so all that to say like yeah ant-man would have been crazy but not crazier than Guardians of the Galaxy not crazier no, than Black not. Panther like they were kind of at the point where it was either like we either need to make these like B-list and C-list characters start hitting in a big way or like teenage david is right and like we should just like t- go go out on a high note after the avengers yeah and also like ant-man i mean i guess that's more hank pim but like ant-man is more like integrated with the universe yeah. in a way that like the guardians of the galaxy aren't really yeah like he's a founding avenger like it wouldn't have been crazy for him to have been in like kind of the hawkeye Role as as far as being one of those characters that is introduced as kind of a secondary player in other movies, and then when they do the Avengers, they're like, and of course, Ant Man is on the team. (laughs) Right, because he's Ant Man. Yeah. What do we think about Edgar right now? Because I feel like at the time, like. People were very excited that he was making a Scott Pilgrim movie. Obviously, mm-hmm. we we should mention that like this movie was a big flop. Like, yes, <laughs> <one> <laughs> well, of it was God's- so expensive. Like, I didn't real. It's it's crazy to me that they got the budget that they did. It is crazy, especially when you look at hot like Hot Fuzz is like ten million. I'm sure yeah. Shaun of the Dead is like ten million at most. Now that must have been like a Michael Sarah thing, right? Like they were like, we've got like the super bad guy who who and who was also like the juno guy like he's anchored some movies that were like smash hits maybe we can like really get this thing to have legs i think it's just like nerd it's a nerd culture thing in my opinion that it's like this can be like our version of iron man or whatever where it's like it's you know because like Iron Man, it's like that's a the, one of the great like triumphs of Iron Man is that it's like a funny and irreverent movie. You have all the stuff with like him like working in the lab late one night mm-hmm. um, with like his robots and stuff. And, like that's like such a memorable and piece what's of that easier movie. Easier sight than that, <laughs> sure, uh, for one's eyes to behold. Yeah, and so I feel like it's like oh, like this is irreverent. This is like very superheroish where it's like, you know, it has action, it has romance, it Mm -hmm. has humor. Well, and there's so much like kind of superhero stuff swirling around it with like uh, Chris Evans and Brandon Routh and like, you know, other other members of the cast have gone on to be in superhero stuff. But like Mm -hmm. those two guys in particular, it's very like, he's evoking just like through the casting the whole like superhero craze. Yeah. And so I do feel like, And it's also an a great thing, I think, as well, because it's like, you know, if you want to use the, if you want to take, like, the blank check kind of narrative out of this, then it's like, he has had two, like, pretty rock solid guarantor movies in terms of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Like, I don't think those movies were huge hits, relatively speaking, but, like. Well, Hoffa's makes like 80 million dollars, which is like kind of crazy for that movie. <laughs> and so I think it's definitely, you know, he was working on Ant-Man. I think it's easy to say, like, let's give this guy the keys and like let him make a big movie. Right. And then we'll see like what it, that looks like for him. And they've talked about it before where like it premiered like they go to Comic-Con at like in like July of 2010 or whatever, like mm-hmm. pretty shortly before the movie comes out. And like. The response is like rapturous right and they're like we're gonna have a huge hit movie on our hands and then no one goes to see it and, I, <laughs> and like i guess like people say that like it's like oh like well like nerds don't really go out to see movies i guess was like p- what people were saying but like that doesn't feel <laughs> right like i think the big thing is just yeah, that nerd would never go see the same movie five times by themselves <laughs> yeah. Well, like I, I, feel like people, I, I, I really don't know. I can't really point to something other than that the the IP is not as established mm-hmm. as like what people maybe thought it was. So I, I have seen some indications, like nothing, nothing that sort of like deep dives it or is explicit about it. But I have, I feel like as I was reading about it, I saw several things that sort of suggested that the marketing was was like possibly kind of part of the failure insofar as like the ability to make it seem like something beyond being like you know nerd iron man for the like video game crowd yeah was like like a factor yeah like it is it's hard to market a nerd movie i think like but again like it is a movie where like video game aesthetics are very forward so it's like mm-hmm. that is what the movie is so it's not like it's not like it's depicting the movie in an unfair way and like I don't I just don't understand how it's like there should be like a core audience that you're connecting there with it like I remember being excited for this movie having mm-hmm. not seen Charlotte the Dead or Hot Fuzz but probably knowing who Edgar Wright was and like going to see it in the theater and like being excited to see it like having a friend be like i want to go see this Mm -hmm. and like the being like a pretty big crowd as i remember like a good response to it and so it's like why why can't this make like I guess, like, it was never going to be a hit. Like, it was never going to make, like, $400 million. Right. Well, yeah. But it made $49 million. (laughs) (laughs) It is the kind of movie, though, that, especially, like, in 2010, at which point, like, not to like, obviously, at that point, the MCU's in full swing, and those movies are making tons of money with similar and larger budgets. But I do feel like this is the kind of movie where, in 2010, the idea of, like, a 35-year-old going to see this is, like... I guess. They so. would I I can't imagine a thirty-five-year-old in twenty ten walking out of this and being like, Amazing. <laughs> like I feel like they would just be like, the kids of today are lost. <laughs> like instantly <laughs> aged like fifty years by the experience of viewing this movie. Sure. And it's also a movie that does not do well internationally. Like it makes like twenty million internationally, which probably kills it. And it's like I don't fully get that either. Like it is a very like dialogue heavy and like joke heavy movie compared to like say iron man but like it still does have like a lot of action in it and like a lot of like stuff that you see and are like i haven't really seen a movie that looks like this before and like capturing like video game combat in a way that Mm -hmm. it's like like i remember being like so blown away by the action and i think the action still looks really great but in terms of like the sort of, like, physics of it, the way that people can, like, be ragdolled and, like, fly through the air and, like, get knocked up and, like, and batted around and things like that. Like, that's cool. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> it's, it's enjoy. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the last sequence where, like, they're beating up Gideon and it's, like, they're, like, flipping him end over end. And, like, the big, like, they do, like, the big axe kick, like, five times <laughs> in this movie where someone just, like, gets bashed in the head. And, like, mm-hmm. that's a fun aesthetic thing. But, yeah, like... This is like speaking of getting knocked up. They did consider Seth Rogen for Scott Pilgrim. That to is crazy. Right into this casting. <laughs> um, do you have any more uh, like of those hypothetical castings? That post that I mentioned that O'Malley made for the 10th anniversary did mention some, so I'm going to pull that up if you want to vamp for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a potentially controversial take here. <laughs> I, I'm. St- well, this is not my controversial take, but it is maybe a little controversial. I'm not that sold on Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And I feel like there's a divide where like casual movie fans or like people who aren't like super into movies will be like, she sucks, she's wooden, she's boring. And then people who are really into movies are like, she's so great, I love her. And it's just kind of strange to me. Um. Like, I think she and Michael Sarah are both bad in this movie. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Um, I think she is bad. I think he. So my my hot take is I think they're both quite wrong for these parts. Maybe less so, Elizabeth. That that might be more so what I'm getting at. Like I definitely don't think that Michael Sarah. Well, maybe it's both. I think that they. I think that Michael Sarah is asking or doing what they asked him to do i don't yeah. think that what they asked him to do is a good take on scott pilgrim as we meet him in the book yes i fully agree with that because i feel like the character he is portraying He's is so low energy <laughs> he is low energy and i feel like <laughs> the character he is portraying is like He's portraying, like, an Edgar Wright or a Brian Leo Malley type rather Mm -hmm. than, like... And it's, like, to some extent, in a weird way, the character is, like, a sort of wish fulfillment. Because, like, we've talked about that on the previous episodes, the way that, like... It was, like, Brian Leo Malley almost, like, casting himself as, like, an indie rocker cool guy. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it is to some degree, like wish for him. Like Scott Pilgrim is a cool person. Like I feel like that's just like pretty objectively true within like the course of the book. Like he's not a good person, but he is like cool. And it's like he plays in a rock band. And so it's like Scott Pilgrim or Sarah is like his performance is giving it's giving um well he's doing like he's doing like he's um, doing the michael sarah thing yeah but he's like he's doing like george michael bluth but like with a dash of uh his like youth and revolt Uh, francois (laughs) dillinger i believe is (laughs) the character's name (laughs) (laughs) of the of the like the the, uh, the rebellious like bad boy alter ego he's just got like like a few milliliters of Francois Dillinger poured over George Bluth and like that's what you've got and that yeah to me that's just like not really who Scott Pilgrim is and I also feel again this is maybe less so Michael Sarah's fault and more so the fault of uh, the script and just sort of the ability for the, the movie to like focus on things but like scott who is a character who we've already said has like about the depth of a puddle and yet like he still does not manage to convey the depth of scott pilgrim as we see him on the page where like i i just feel like the scott pilgrim of the page is a character who we see in pain in a way that is like very real and genuine at points whereas the pain that appears for like the scott pilgrim of the film is like forever like kind of ironic or played as like a. and isn't it funny that he's like being such a whiny little baby right now now yeah there is i will say like a fair amount of napoleon dynamite dna in here which yeah. i just realized because, like i was just thinking about i was like imagining his performance and it's like it is him just being like gosh like he <laughs> is doing like gosh energy where like he's sort of like put upon and like perpetually sort of bothered by like the negative things but yeah it's like it's it, it. It feels more, you know, like I'm thinking to like the beginning of the movie where it's sort of him talking about how he's dating a high schooler, mm-hmm. and in the book, it's maybe portrayed a little bit more like it's like oh, like it's a high school girl, like that's sort of like the whole thing about it. Whereas with with like the patheticness is more implicit <laughs> in right. the book, I guess. Whereas like in this, it's like oh, like this guy is like dating a high school student. That's kind of sad. Whereas at least at the beginning of the book we're supposed to see like the coolness of it where it's like he's dating a young girl like it's, that's it, hot. yeah and like he he's splitting the room in terms of like some of them are like this is bad but some of them are like nice <laughs> yeah oh definitely i think like steven stills and young e at the beginning are like nice so they they he <laughs> considered robert pattinson for lucas lee Sure. Uh, I saw That's another like the same Yeah. You're doing the same thing there. Yeah. But like Chris Evans is like weirdly very good in this movie. I, I <laughs> saw crazy. another one that was like even more you're doing the exact same thing that I have now not yet been able to find. Um Jorma Tacone was almost Wallace Wells, which I think would have been incredible. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be good. I mean, I think that that's like yeah. I think Kieran, th- those Kieran are Culkin the two is also best performances in the movie. Yeah, like I, I have yeah, I agree. Kieran Culkin is amazing, and I and I'm not like they. Oh, they should have done Jorma, but like that also would have been really good. um Also considered for Kim Pine, Betty Gilpin, Rooney sure. Mara, Zoe Kazan. Mm. Sure. And, yeah, I. I the betty gilpin would have been crazy i feel like zoe kazan i think is who i would have gone with out of those three but in the end they went with a pill yeah you, you <laughs> they, yeah, yeah i get all of it she's yes <laughs> <laughs> uh yes which which also just like kind of feels right in terms of like the sort of like metacast I mean, of it all like... where she was like engaged to jay Barishell, which just like it makes <laughs> it, it's just like in terms of like the broader sort of like apatow verse it like makes sense to me that like oh michael Sarah's in this and then like jay baruchelle's fiance is playing his ex-girlfriend jay Barishell is a good show for that Scott Pilgrim. That actually is true <laughs> because he has more true. of like the sort of like unfounded con. Because like I think the biggest thing about Scott Pilgrim is like he has this like unearned confidence about him. Yeah, that like allows him to coast through life in this way. And he has some of that, but like the Michael Sarah performance is more just like it's like I'm dating a high school girl. Like I'm as surprised as you. <laughs> um the other person that i was trying to find who was also considered for lucas lee was sebastian stan <laughs> sure. which again what, like even what more, has he even been in at that point like yeah. rachel getting married let's let's have a quick little look-see sebastian stan prior to 2010 <sighs> film keep it strictly to film 71 fragments of a chronology of chance tony and tina's wedding red doors the architect the covenant the education of charlie banks rachel getting married spread 2010 hot tub time machine Uh, baby oh yeah he's like the bully in hot tub time machine hot tub time machine pretty solid hot tub time machine 2 very bad. Mm, I've heard this from you. <laughs> <laughs> but. I have to think based on reading that that either he he must have been doing something on TV or or they were just like and introducing Sebastian Stan well, like I think it's probably a case where you know, like he was cast in Captain America as well and in the supporting role, but yeah. like, you know i think he was probably like a name that was around at this time in 2012 he was in six episodes of once upon a time as the mad hatter which is so yeah that's crazy um yeah yeah. he like he had a recurring role on gossip girl i think it's more just like he's a hot guy and it sort of only retroactively becomes you're doing the chris evans yeah well and it is also the kind of thing where it's like Uh, yeah it's it's the kind of thing where after he gets famous for being in the mcu then all of a sudden everyone who is involved in casting starts to be like remember that he read for lucas lee and it's like was he ever seriously considered like maybe not but then all of a sudden they're all like oh imagine that like alternate universe where we cast sebastian stan for lucas lee instead of his like future captain america co-star yeah it's it's like it's where the thing where you have like seth rogan reading for dwight yeah that's exactly what i was thinking of as well where it's like <laughs> yeah like <laughs> it's like this crazy sense crazy time, that this guy who retroactively... was like, looking for work no matter like what it was read for this role and then yeah yeah it is exactly like that you know we, i don't have a ton to say about mary elizabeth Winstead. i don't think she she just i don't i don't think she's wooden but I do think she always comes across as, like, not quite a person, maybe. Yeah, I just don't really buy her. I also think that Ramona is underwritten in yes, in the well, movie, like, period. And, like, doesn't really, her, her arc from the comics is, like, half-baked at best. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the ending and the way that it, like, very much sidelines her, like, almost literally. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, and that's what I was sort of saying is, like, I think the point about, like, the first volume being out being the only one out makes sense because i think winstead in particular like she fits the characterization of ramona from the first volume much better than she does from like subsequent volumes because i think in the subsequent volumes she is more of like a full fledged person Mm -hmm. and we like even though she is still still, like sarcastic like we get to see like her niceness (laughs) more i guess yeah and we get to see her emote whereas like in the first volume, it's, like, mostly, like, she is, like, the mystery girl, and then she is just, like, kind of, like, smirky, mm-hmm. but into Scott is, like, kind of her vibe yeah. for the first volume. And I just don't... I don't think she handles the more, like, dramatic elements of their relationship as successfully. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a hurdle for the movie as a whole that it is so evil X is oriented and that it really is just kind of like transitioning from fight to fight sort of the whole time because you it well a it truncates the whole thing like i feel like the movie unfolds over the course of like a week whereas of course in scott pilgrim it's like at least a year i would say or it feels like it's at least a year um and so you just don't really get to see them like have that development that 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 change that the X is so uh kindly drop get integrated as far as like in in the books the defeat of every evil ex is also representative of the the like defeat of some issue that their relationship has encountered and then like a subsequent deepening of the relationship Mm -hmm. whereas in this like it all happens so fast that it's like the defeat of each evil ex represents the defeat of an evil ex and it means that we can like do the scene that transitions us to the next evil ex fight yeah which sort of magnifies one of the problems that i talked about in one of the previous episodes where it's like the the further it goes the weirder it becomes that like <laughs> they're like fighting and not killing as you enjoy pointing out uh, or suggesting mm-hmm. but like the fact that it is built around like doing battle with these people whereas like the book sort of pretty quickly becomes about like how it they shouldn't be fighting these people necessarily (laughs) um and it sort of truncates that significantly and so it's like you don't really start to have that thought until like he fights with gideon and i don't think that that's really a bad thing like it maybe almost makes it make more sense in a way that like he still cares about fighting the evil exes when he's (laughs) on to like the fifth and sixth one but it may be like it it, it certainly harms, like, the way that we view their relationship, certainly. Yeah. And, uh, like, I do think as well that there's an element in the books of the fights. The fights just do feel like they carry a lot more kind of, like, symbolic significance in terms of... Or, or I guess even just, like, thematic significance where it is, like these relational hurdles and these these hurdles of being a young adult are conceptualized as like a fight mm-hmm. in, in very much in like the superhero mold or the manga mold, where it's like these very mundane, like ordinary things that are a part of everybody's life become these these like Herculean feats when you overcome them. And that's just sort of like part of the style of the book. Whereas, Mm -hmm. again, in, in the movie, like, I guess you can make the case that it's still the same thing. But when there's not as clear of a connection to the fights that are happening and the progression of Scott as a person or his relationship with Ramona, then it starts to feel less like this is so emblematic of like kind of how Scott conceives of the like travails of his ultimately pretty boring life as opposed to just sort of like this looks cool in a movie yeah i think that the the biggest thought i had while watching it this time because this is a movie that i I still do like this movie a lot i think that especially visually like there's a ton going on and like it is still i think like a pretty strong script uh with some exceptions but like I think the biggest thought I had while watching it this time, having just done like read all the comics and then talked about them for like two (laughs) hours each is like, this does suffer by comparison to the comics, even though like there are some parts where it's like, that's cooler than like what they did in the comic, or like, I like, you know the scene with the twins like that whole fight scene which we sort of alluded to mm-hmm. briefly in in a previous episode how it's like it is very different and i like i love that scene like i think it looks so cool um and all that stuff but then it suffers in terms of like not being able to lay out like <laughs> give the twins dialogue <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just not like it not being able to like lay out the emotions and like letting i mean like it maybe it this is an obvious thing to say, and maybe we mentioned it on a previous episode, but if this was made today, it would surely be a TV show, right? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I don't see how you could not. And like that, I think that works so much better because like we, you know, we talk a lot about uh especially in comics like this that have like this slice of life element, like giving the book room to breathe. And then, like, if you're splitting it up into seasons, even if it's two X's a season, and it's, like, ten episode seasons, then it's, like, you're stretching. Like, you could have characters reoccur rather than, like, other than Roxy, when an X shows up, like, it's time to fight them. Yeah. And we only really, like, and whereas, like, in the other books, like, they're sort of more persistent presences throughout a full volume. And that way, like, they can sort of be integrated into... The more like prominent stuff, which is like music and slice of life, and maybe that can take us to the sort of the battle of the bands, how they they sort of tweak that to make that like the underlying narrative, which I think is a smart tweak. Yeah, I my understanding is that that was kind of how O'Malley had originally planned to structure it was to have the battle of the bands be kind of the recurring thing that they they keep coming back to, not necessarily as the like battleground for the evil X's, but just mm. that like the battle of the bands was going to be a bigger, longer running sort of plot element as opposed to something that they do once. Yeah, it 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 gives it more of a through line, and especially in the movie where it's like it would feel kind of weird if it was just like it feed the X and then in the next scene, the next X shows up. It does give it more of like a narrative propulsion that like you're moving along this progression in the same way that Scott is like moving along this progression of battling different people. And so I do think that that is effective. You know, I don't want the comic to be like that, but I think for like a two hour movie, I think that's a good way to like sort of truncate that and streamline it. Yep. Just speaking of the, the writing and changes, I found that I I felt like both weirdly the movie like punches up a lot of things from the comic and yet is also less funny. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that it may just be a thing. I mean, at least for me, where, for me, this movie, like, the jokes are, like, very firmly ingrained in my head. Mm-hmm. Where, and, like, I remember laughing uproariously at, like, like the scene in the second cup when it's Julie and, like, she keeps swearing and it's, mm-hmm. like, censoring. It's, like, like that. that's a very Edgar Wright thing. And that's a very, like... I haven't seen this in a movie before. Like, there's like this metatextual element mm-hmm. to it. This is funny. Or like his gearing up montage where they stop to show him like laboriously tying his shoes. That's a very Eddie Gray yeah, thing. That, and, like, I, I, I was like, t- isn't this gag like almost verbatim in Hot Fuzz? I think it almost certainly is. And like that, like at the time, and I think that this movie in a weird way is like very influential, almost maybe that like, the way, like, just certain, like, visual gags and, mm-hmm. like, the speed at which things cut and sort of the, like, the sarcastic voice of the camera, if that makes sense. Like, things like the gag where you have, like, the sort of, like, whoosh between the all the different people and then the button is that it's, like, Wallace whooshing to uh, <laughs> Stacey's boyfriend. Yes, that like, is that very is, good that it's it's funny and then it's also like that is a joke that i feel like we seal the kind of joke we see a lot nowadays well it's yes like... it's of course been perfected in the uh, family guy parody of return of the jedi when they're doing the scene on <laughs> Jabba's Sugar. barge and they're all yeah. exchanging looks and then one of them is a pitcher shaking his head <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> really good, <laughs> it's a perfect gag flawlessly executed but i'm thinking just even more in terms of like certain dialogue parts where yeah. like like even like the the 11 evil x's line where that stacy has and scott is like it's seven and she's like oh that's not that bad it's like that's just like a good like clean punch up from what is in the comic or like the scene when Wallace like tells Stacy about knives, um, and, and he keeps saying, You know me, I'm like, that's such a like that's that's a lot tighter than that sequence plays out in the comic in a way that is funnier, I think. And yet just like as a whole, it doesn't it doesn't hit as hard for me, I guess. I almost feel like it suffers from like being too funny almost, or like having <laughs> too many jokes packed into it. Like, like it's just it's too relentless. Like, Yeah, because it's, it it literally is like, we took every good joke from the move, from the books and like got them into the movie in Mm -hmm. some way. Like, like certain lines get like moved around, like the, where Ramona says like, I've dabbled in being a bitch, that like comes much later Mm -hmm. in the movie than it does in the comic and things like that. Like, it's, it literally is just like, and it feels like he read all the books and like, (laughs) <laughs> underlined anytime, like you saw a funny joke, and then like got all of those into the movie. Mm-hmm. And so it is a little relentless. And, and also, like, when it's all jokes, like I said, having just read them, when it's all jokes that I remember, and are like, it's sort of like you have like a landscape, and then those jokes are like little like mountains on the landscape, right. whereas this is like a series of mountains, and it's exhausting to sort of like try and like ford between them. Yes. Now, I want to bring up one joke which I think is very funny. And don't understand why. I mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it is a joke you're also a fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is when Lucas Lee is walking away from his stunt doubles, beating up Scott, and just looks at his phone and goes, That's actually hilarious. <laughs> I do really like that <laughs> So joke. funny. I have no idea why. <laughs> that... And that is, I think, like, the tone when it's working well. <laughs> and I feel like that is, like, the tone of the comic as well. Because I think, like, the thing about the movie is it's much more overtly a comedy. Whereas the comic, like, it has humor, like, peppered in. But I feel like it's, n- it's not, like, humor forward. I feel like it's, like, slice of life forward with, like, humor around it. Whereas this is, like, comedy forward, like, almost every line Is a joke, or and almost like that? The joke is that it's so heightened. Yeah, like there, like there are parts where he just like says stuff in funny ways, and like every line that Brie Larson says is like weirdly elevated. Yeah, and so it's like no one ever has. (laughs) She she's okay. I wouldn't say she's a standout, but at any rate, there are like no one ever has like a real conversation (laughs) in this movie. Yeah, that's certainly true whereas i feel like what makes the comic so great is that like people are having real conversations and then you're peppering it in with like the absurdity whether that's the humor or whether that's like the the you know psychedelic superhero manga whatever influences coming out like we talked about before it's like what's cool about scott pilgrim is that you're taking a normal world and putting all these elements into it and having that like magical realism and like the same with the humor like it's it's real and then suddenly like you come in with a joke that's either like metatextual or that is just like sort of like out of place and that that sort of is what it's a it's a spice in the dish rather than making it the dish right i feel like if there's something you can point to that is like a microcosm of the differences in the between like The way that the movie, or the way that like the movie almost under misunderstands the book to some extent is the Negascott stuff where like, (laughs) just like Negascott is very like thrown off. And I think that when I saw the com, when I saw the movie, having not read the full comic, I was like, that's a funny subversion of what you would expect. But then, by subverting that and like having it be tossed off and having it be nothing, then like you're making Scott's like emotional journey into nothing. And I feel like that is maybe like one of the big failings of the movie is like not effectively imparting the emotional journey for Scott, but especially for Ramona. Yeah. I feel like that part in some ways for me, like almost clarifies or encapsulates like why O'Malley is not credited other than as the like kind of adapted by because it feels like the sort of detail that he probably like had a meeting with Wright and Bacall and was like, um, yeah, like the, the, this like Negus Scott idea I came up with, I'm playing with, it's going to be sort of like a manifestation of the parts about himself that he doesn't like. And one of the big sort of climaxes of the final volume is going to be, um, how he kind of makes peace with that. And that's what they've got from him. And then their interpretation of it is like, uh, like the nega Scott, we introduce him and then he is just kind of like a punchline where it's like, of course the person who Scott like most likes is himself. Yeah. And like, I think that that is a very like classic trope is sort of like the dark mirror. And so I get the instinct to sort of subvert that and like lampshade that a little bit, but I mean like it's such an important part of the book Mm -hmm. like and uh, you know I think the placement within the within the movie also like points to that because like you know the the that should that is the emotional climax in a lot of ways like Mm -hmm. even though like all the one-up stuff and like the power of self-respect stuff like that all sort of like is a climax but like the that having that like moment his like dark night of the soul and then like making the decision to go back to toronto that is i feel like the like culmination of his whole emotional arc yeah it's also placed in a really strange point in the movie where like gideon it's is really dead weird. and then and then it's like it's like the denouement it's so it's like such a weird spot for it into yeah, a, so a point that i'm like the ending here. Sure. Well, I was just going to say like it's so weirdly placed that I'm like they maybe should have just like not done nega Scott. <laughs> like I you could so. you could cut that part with like almost nothing lost. Like you could almost cut it unedited to just have it be like Gideon is dead and then they leave the club. Yeah. And I mean like again, we talked a little bit. I we talked on on mic, right? <laughs> that the ending was changed and it was re-shot. No, that was, so it, that was before... I think we mentioned that the ending was reshot, but not yes. the specifics of it. And that so it has an alternate ending vibe. Yes, that there was an original ending, which you can sort of discern from watching the movie. <laughs> and, and I had this thought, too, before even realizing that it was the original ending, that it's like, the movie seems to set up him getting back together with Knives. Well, the movie seems to feel that he should be with Knives yeah and that that's what's so weird about the the final set piece and you know that's what makes it so weird relative to how it ends is that the final set piece is all about ramona being sidelined and rather than the two of them fighting together like it is at the end of the book Mm -hmm. it's him and knives fighting together and that is just like a (laughs) weird choice like i if, if they're not getting together at the end like what is that meant to be imparting to us other than that just like they're friends <laughs> yeah like, yeah i do think that knives even just like the moving moving her like attack on ramona to that point as well like we just lose out on the knives that we see in the in the book who has her like self-actualization and like comes to the realization that like she is too good for Scott and, mm-hmm. and gets her moment to be like, it's not that I don't care about you. I just don't like, I I like see you who for who you are now. And she doesn't really get that moment in the book ex- or in the movie rather, except at the very, very end. But it's rendered as like, you should go be with Ramona because I mean, she does say I'm too cool for you, but it, it's just a little bit more of like, well, how did we get there? From here or from where we were like two minutes ago. Yeah, and we see some of that in the last book, which is where like it's like he is like, Do you want to make out kind of thing? And then she is like, No, I'm over you. Which I think like makes perfect I mean like that is the whole like point of the character, that it's like she is obsessed with Scott and then she sort of realize like she is the one who like cracks the facade of scott in some ways that like she sees she like learns to see through him and like learns to understand him as like a person rather than as like her conception of him and that's what like allows her to move on and so it's strange and you know it, obviously it has to be a little truncated obviously i think if your character is going to get like crowded out a little bit it's going to be knives mm-hmm. but then it's like she's not crowded out because she is like the primary. She is a big part of the finale. Yeah. And so, and I think that that is just points to the whole thing being, like, you're truncating extended character arcs. And, like, the whole point is we see characters develop over six books. We see them go from, like, starting the relationship. You know, for Nia specifically, it's, like, we see her go from, like, starting the relationship. We sort of see, like, the five stages of grief with her almost, (laughs) where it's, like, she... Hates Scott and like she wants to fight Ramona and then she's just like sad and then she's sort of like learning to be her own person and then by the end she is sort of like accepted that like she is who she is and she doesn't need Scott. And then with this it's like it sort of maybe suggests more that she, well like what is the, the arc of Scott as I guess like because like the big culmination is that like it's not about the power of love it's about the power of self-respect which i think is more true of the movie than the book right well in the book it's not it's not the power of self-respect it's the power of understanding of both right. like himself and gideon and ramona i guess but but yeah i think that self-respect is just well, I don't know. I am, I am sort of like maybe self-respect is a bit more so what the movie – like I think that, that maybe encapsulates the difference between Scott Pilgrim as portrayed by Michael Cera and Scott Pilgrim mm-hmm. as we see him in the book, is that what Scott Pilgrim in the movie lacks is self-respect, whereas what Scott Pilgrim of the book lacks is understanding like you never get the sense that he like doesn't like himself. <laughs> really, no, right? not really. Like, I, I mean, there are there are moments where he sort of like is tacitly or like not so tacitly acknowledging that like <laughs> many things of who he is and his life are messed up. But they are mostly just like kind of pulled from the book. Yeah. And like it's like when I was watching the ending where it's like the whole thing is like he has the extra life he goes back in and then like he's going to fight Gideon. And he's like you're going to fight me for ramona and he says no i'm fighting you for me and i was like why I <laughs> like i don't fully get i guess just like for his own pride to some extent but it's like that is all built around him like losing ramona right and like so the only reason like, he has a problem with gideon is because of ramona yeah, and I guess, like, the Sex Bob-Omb stuff is there as well. Yeah, but, like, if it wasn't for Ramona, he would have signed the contract and just been <laughs> in Sex Bob-Omb. Yeah, probably. Um, so that is, like, what confused me a little bit, where it's, like, how can you not care, Like, or, like, not not care, but, like, how can you have accepted, hypothetically speaking, if we're, like, imagining the Knives ending of this, how can you accept that your relationship with Ramona is over but still want to kill this guy (laughs) and again that gets back to the sort of whole idea of like why are we fighting the evil exes but also like I think that as a character Gideon is like much more overtly villainous in this we haven't talked about Jason Schwartzman just (laughs) his his turn and face reveal like little moment is like so like because it's like There is, like, something where you're expecting him. Like, his unhotness. Not that Jason Schwartzman is, like, ugly or anything, but just, like, him turning and looking so, like, -like. (laughs) rat-like. Yeah, like, sneering is, like, a very good moment. It is very good. He also has, uh, like, the one anime moment in the movie, which is that when he, he, like, gets the glare on his glasses and pushes them up. But isn't that also, like... I feel like that's also from like Phoenix Wright or something. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't like there a that's character dull. who like I, I well, yes, that that game's aesthetic is obviously very anime influenced, but I feel like there's a character Miles. What's his face? Like, literally has an animation where like his glasses flash and he goes like, <laughs> like pushes them up. There are two things that I saw while we were doing the books that I now can't find, but was saving them for the movie because they're movie related. One of them is a very funny picture of uh, Jonah Hill in, like, the Fro era, Michael Sarah, and another guy who I'm like, that guy is somebody, but I couldn't remember remember who he was uh, at a comic store together, and they're all buying, like, a bunch of Brian Lee O'Malley stuff. Uh, Jonah Hill has, like, five copies of Lost at Sea and has them, like, fanned out, which is really <laughs> funny. And then Michael Sarah just has, like, volume three of Scott Pilgrim and is like, I'm getting this um so that was funny and very good and then the other one was an interview i read with brian leo O'Malley, um where he talked about how they did a screening of the movie like one of the premieres that he was able to invite a bunch of friends to including like so he like invited all the people who were his friends like when he was working on scott pilgrim and who are like basically in it to like some extent or another who like informed the characters and all that and then he just like describes it very sadly where he's like a lot of them left without talking to me and i think they found it really uncomfortable and hurtful (laughs) i was like whoa this is very sad Sorry, they found what what? The movie and like seeing them the way that like their lives were depicted in the movie or like the elements of their life had been like taken and right. added in. And it's just like, this is like very, I, I don't know. It like also was sort of like a key to like the Brian Leo O'Malley like puzzle for me somehow that like, not that he's like so big time now or whatever, but I'm just like, he just does seem like the kind of guy who like might have accidentally alienated a bunch of people and feels really sad about it. I mean, you can sort of see, I'm like, it is, we sort of can zoom out here and be like, it's crazy that they made a movie out of Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> and like, you know, we've sort of talked about like the hyper specificity of, uh, of like the Toronto of it all and of like that specific era. And I think like, what's in some ways it's admirable that the movie like works to capture that and works to maintain that. Like you have the like rocket, which no longer exists. And like you have the scenes at Lee's palace and stuff, but it's like, it's sort of what I was saying in a previous episode where like, you know, it starts with saying like the far off world of Toronto, Canada, Mm -hmm. where it's like, it, it is sort of deliberately. And, you know, maybe this gets back to the whole chicken with plums things, plums thing you were talking about. Where it's like it's portray it's sort of intentionally portraying it as like a mythical land, which fits in with the magical realism to some extent. But then it's like if you don't have the basis of it in the way that Brian Lee O'Malley obviously does, and that Mm -hmm. the, the book does, then maybe that feels a little bit more like it's like a sort of like cartoonish representation of that of like a location and a time rather than being like someone who was living in a location a time and is depicting it and then adding stuff on top yeah there was a, a similar like thing that I was reading where basically they were they were talking about like wanting to show like Brian Lee O'Malley's Toronto basically and we're talking about like having to recreate some of the places that like no longer existed and stuff like that and and even like talking about how there were like certain locations where they wanted to go and shoot that were in the book and O'Malley was like I don't remember where that is or like where I saw that and like had no idea. And so they had to like go through his photo references and then like drive around the city like looking for the places. And it just does, it's it's just got that kind of try hard energy where it's not like this is where we like, this is the place that we know and like live in and want to depict that place. It's very much like we are looking for like this specific thing or we're recreating like, like Wright talks about how when they did this, the like Lee's palace scene, there was like a day when metric was on set and they were like, this should like be preserved in a museum because it's like such a faithful recreation of Lee's palace. And it's just, it's just got that, I don't know. It's just got that vibe. It doesn't feel like you are at like Lee's palace as it was to be there. It feels like you're in like a weird at the right, collector. Lee's museum. Yeah. You're, you're in like the museum that a weird collector painstakingly like recreated the place exactly as it was it's like barbara streisand's mall in her basement or whatever. yeah <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, there's there just that like it. sort of surreal element where it's like this isn't really what toronto is like this is what like the, this is like the version of toronto that edgar wright worked really hard to make feel like what toronto is like yeah and i think that that goes back to like it being something that you care about because like It is like a labor, like Scott Pilgrim is a labor of love in so many ways. And then it's like, I think that Edgar Wright is really good at making movies that are like labors of love and like has his things, like his little like fixations that he's interested in and likes doing that. But then it's like, he didn't, he didn't faithfully recreate Toronto in Scott Pilgrim because he loves Toronto. He recreated, he faithfully recreated Toronto because He likes to faithfully recreate a comic book. Like he's like, I think probably what his thinking was was like, we want to adapt this really faithfully because like that's important because this book is like such a specific time and place. But then it's like, well, you don't have that like lived experience. Like you didn't live in Toronto in like two thousand five, and so it's like it. Like you said, it's it's like a copy of a copy. Yeah, I feel like the point where it like was felt most in your face to me is during the Castelloma fight where Lucas Lee like throws Scott through like a matte painting of New York and it rips and like reveals the CN Tower that I yeah I just was like in 2010 at Toronto Comic Con they were probably like ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> and, but like today I was just like oh <laughs> yeah and I mean like we sort of talked about that in the first Scott Pogan episode where it's like, how much does Brian Lee O'Malley really care about Toronto? Like how much was this like a love letter to Toronto? Because like, I think it's, there's a case to be made that it's not really that, that it's like, he's not saying like, he, well, the way he describes it. And I don't know how true this is that it's like, it's funny that he is, Like, that I am depicting Toronto in the same way that someone would depict New York or LA. Like, that's almost the joke of it, that Toronto is, like, second class compared to those cities, which, like, I think now most people would agree, like, that's not really true. Like, Toronto is, like, a major world city, but then it's also, like, he is sort of consciously depicting, like, the Annex and Witchwood and, Mm -hmm. like, areas that are not, like, downtown squares that, like, feel like a big city And so maybe that's like sort of part of the irony that he's trying to create there. Yeah, I do think that there's an element of it that is just like part of what he was doing. Like, I mean, we've talked several times about how like Scott Pilgrim is not really an autobiography and there's really not that he has a lot in common with Scott, but there is still a lot of like capturing kind of what his life is at that moment. And because of that, I just feel like wherever he was living when he was making Scott Pilgrim, that is, like, what would have been in the book. Like, if he had been in Halifax, it would have been Halifax. If he had been in Montreal, it would have been Montreal. Like, it's, yeah, it's not so much that it's, like, such a love letter to Toronto because he loves Toronto so much. It's just, like, I was trying to capture, like, kind of a version of what it was like to be me at that point in my life. And, like, as it happens, I was in Toronto. So (laughs) Toronto is, like, what you see in the book. Yeah, and, like, I think that that's, like, part of what makes the book great is like that he's striving for that level of specificity and like is like putting intersections and like libraries and like sort of the more mundane like that that it is set in toronto but it's not like there's a big fight at the cn tower you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like he's sort of depicting the mundanity of it in a way that is interesting and i just i don't know if the movie is sort of living up to that in some ways yeah um Quickly, <laughs> the, some ideas of the for the film's ending were cut before production, <laughs> including that Scott would turn out to be a serial killer who fantasized the gaming aspects, and that Gideon would tra- turn into a Transformer-style robot. I mean, the second one, sure. The sec. Well, the second one is like it's not what happened, but like there is an element. It could like, have been like what yeah, the, the like lowering of the like you know frozen ex-girlfriends is not that much like, crazier or weirder than if Gideon had been, like, <laughs> and, like, transformed into something. Yeah, or if, like, you told, like, if there's some version of the book where it's, like, the ending is, like, Gideon is a kaiju and, like, Scott and, uh, like, Sex Ball Bomb has to, like, pilot a mecha. Yeah. Then it's, like, that makes perfect sense. Like, you could do a, a Voltron thing with, like, the three of them and Knives and Ramona. Like, that would totally be in keeping with the book. Uh, so that's not weird. Scott turning out to be a serial killer. <laughs> that yeah. So I also saw that and I was like, "Who do Surely we think? That's not real. <laughs> who do we think pitched that idea?" And and again, like, how seriously was that considered? Is that one of the things that sticks in everybody's head because they're like, just as an example of like how you know scattered to the four winds we were as far as like trying to come up with an ending. We even talked about what if Scott was a serial killer and it was all in his head or was it like, like did one of the actual, like did one of Edgar Wright, Brian Lee O'Malley or Michael Bacall actually like come to a meeting and be like, so I mean like, stop me if this is crazy, but I've been working with like this idea. Okay. So the way that it's described in this article, that is like the original source for that on Wikipedia is that it's like it that it would there would be a news report at the end that say that says a local teen has killed seven people <laughs> and like i think that makes more sense as like the ending to like as a final joke yeah where it's like i and I don't think that really says that he dreamed it like i don't think that that necessarily follows like he said edgar wright says that he said, yeah, we nearly shot that on video during the reshoots, but damn it, we only had six hours of night and no time to do it. It would have been funny. <laughs> so basically, like it's like it does it does sound en- like a joke, like like it, it makes would be more like sense as an ending gag where it's like as the they're movie like ends. fading into the door you hear a report that is like gideon graves has been identified as the most recent victim of like <laughs> the violent yeah. teen- local teenager who has been like spotted around the city committing wanton acts of murder like yeah it, it does make sense as like a final little button joke yeah and it's sort of you know like we talked about this like we talked about like is he killing them and like that whole right concept which is like obviously never addressed in the book but like you know, you can see that being a funny joke, yeah. as opposed to something where it's like, the last 20 minutes. Is yeah. about like-, <laughs> like, Scott wakes up and is like, Dear Diary, I had the dream again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anything else we want to touch on before we do awards talk? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like, so you know, I feel I do often worry when we're doing these episodes. Like, we tend to harp on the things that we don't like. We tend to yes, sort we're of very like negative people. I think we we are kind of <laughs> negative on this show. I feel like. Well, I think that we have the a general approach to most things that uh, is problem oriented, and if uh, if it is fine and it works, it doesn't necessarily need to be addressed. <laughs> I think. Also, I think that you know with stuff like this where it's like it's a given that i like scott pilgrim and it's a given that i like this movie like you know i i had this has gone down a little in my memory another thing actually before we do awards is like this feels so much more of a time than the book does i feel like like oh even though the book is like set in such a specific time you could tell me that like you know with a few changes that it's like it takes place in like 2016 to 2018 and like it would be just as believable more or less mm-hmm. whereas this is like this clearly came out in the late 2000s <laughs> like bef- like when superhero culture was like becoming a thing but before it was like the monolithic structure around which mm-hmm. like all cinema is built and like the fact that it's like a comic book adaptation but it's sort of a more obscure comic book and just like that it got this budget and i think like well just like the whole the like the 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 way it was marketed the like hot topic like standee like merchandising yeah. side of things like yeah and i think i think like 5 years earlier this just doesn't get made and then 5 years later it's maybe a little too hokey to get it made but maybe i'm giving people too much credit <laughs> it would I think that obviously like if it came out 5 years later it would be less highly regarded. <laughs> um and cuz I think like this does. It certainly has a cult following. I think you know, I've talked about this myself that like I think this is weirdly like you know, in in keeping with a lot of Edgar Wright stuff that this is like a weirdly influential movie and that like a lot of modern movies sort of try to capture like the pacing and the editing cuz like there are like some really, like, formally audacious things that it does. <laughs> like, the final fight sequence with, like, all, like, the cross-cutting and, like, the split screens that it makes where, like, you'll have, like, the Sex Boba members in, like, a triangle and then it'll cut to, like, a different split screen where it's, like, Gideon and Scott. Like, there's, like, a lot of crazy stuff in this movie. Obviously, the editing is, like, a very Edgar Wright-ian, the way that like scene transitions happen and i think that is like faithful to the book as well like there there's some like stylistic and aesthetic elements that i think are adapted from the book very well like the the like title cards and like the so yeah they went to the thing (laughs) um i did remember one thing that i meant to mention which is that scott's base is a rickenbacker which is crazy (laughs) That's like a $3,000 guitar. And it also is in the comics, which is also crazy. Although I think he, I think we learned that it's actually his brother's bass at that point. Yes, it is. But, but the idea that like Kim is playing like Pearl Export drums that you could get on Kijiji for like $150 and then Scott has this like $3,000 bass is so wild. (laughs) Right. Uh, just, just because I don't think we ever fully wrapped it up. What? How do you feel about Edgar Wright nowadays? Have you? Did you see Last Night in Soho? I have not seen Last Night in Soho, although I have heard mixed things. I really like Baby Driver a lot. Um, mostly, like I'm just such a big Ansel Elgort fan. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, I do. I do really like Baby Driver a lot, though. And I was uh, keen to see Last Night in Soho until I heard that it was not good. And then uh, it also came out in like a weird point pandemic wise where it was like, yeah, to go to a theater to see a movie meant that like you were not allowed to get concessions. You had to have like very strict time. You had to show up. You had to like have your vaccine passport, all that stuff. Like you could go to the movies, but it was kind of an undertaking and it was not really like the movie experience. And so I was being like pretty choosy about what movies I was willing to like actually go and see. So last night in Soho did not make the cut and I have not yet seen it. Yeah. I think last night in Soho is like pretty disastrous. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, like, not even for, like, Edgar Wright things, although I think, like, I I don't know if it's just a case where, like, it, the, the Seinfeld thing or whatever, where it's, like, everyone has copied this and it therefore now feels, like, a little pat. But I do think that, like, some of the bloom has come off the rose in terms of his filmmaking style. Baby Driver was, like, one of my most anticipated movies ever, <laughs> I feel like, and was pretty disappointing to me. Like, just the idea of, like an action movie built around music is like an extremely appealing concept to me. And I feel like it never really delivered on that. Um, and so like, I do think that I have a lot less like reverence and love for Edgar Wright that I did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's never, he's never been that kind of guy for me where I would be like so pumped about it. Like I, I like Sean of the dead. I like hot fuzz quite a bit. Um, Scott Pilgrim, like, I, yeah, I would say Scott Pilgrim is probably on the lower end of his filmography for me. But he he's just the kind of guy who the sorts of people who would hype him up to me were not the sorts of people whose sure. taste I trusted. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and He so, is very much like a, not a nerd, but like a geek's <laughs> filmmaker. And like his stuff is so like flashy and so like formally, like it has a basis in like sort of its... In version of formal style and it's like audacious visual filmmaking yeah. so like it, it appeals to maybe like uh, an, an element <laughs> <laughs> all, all that to say just that like he i've never seen a movie from him that i didn't like and i've i guess like looking at his filmography i have seen most of his movies but i've I, i've also never seen a movie of his that i like loved to death and i've always been a little bit leery of him because of sort of just like the nothing to do with him but just sort of like the sorts of people who are very into him <laughs> Yeah, um, for sure. And, and so, yeah, I I mean, I think generally that's, that remains, like I said, I really like Baby Driver. I think that's probably my favorite movie of his. But even like that one, I can like recognize elements of it where I'm like, that's a bit much for me. And, and as much as like I would say in general, I assume that one of his movies I'm probably going to enjoy, especially if he also wrote it like he's just not the kind of guy that i get like super excited about when it's like this new edgar wright project is coming i would never be like oh the latest (laughs) e-dubs like yeah i i I feel like i was there was like a five-year window like between scott pilgrim and baby driver where i was sort of like that like i ha i don't really like fully love Shaun of the dead or hot fuzz in the way that some people did i think i like wanted to love those movies because like a lot of people were like hot fuzz like that's one of the best movies ever i loved scott pilgrim at the time i still really like it you know obviously like i think that even though it has clearly aged like it hasn't <laughs> aged as nearly as much as it could <laughs> if that makes sense yeah he does i think what it is is that he flirts with a little bit of like earnest kleinism insofar as mm-hmm. like i think that he, he is a much better writer and artist generally than Ernst Klein, in my personal opinion. But I do think that part of his appeal to some people is that like, oh, did you hear that? He mentioned the thing. Yes. And I mean, like that—that that is to some degree, agree that's the brian leo O'Malley thing as well at least in this book well yeah it's, like, it's it's the scott pilgrim thing for sure i think we will yeah, see as yeah, yeah. we scott continue Pol- yes i should say scott pilgrim, his, not his bibliography that it's not really the brian leo O'Malley thing but yeah, it's definitely think, the scott pilgrim thing and i think that that in many ways is what makes scott pilgrim like more of an enduring artifact and i think we talked about this a little bit on the episode with the books that like That, like, he is the kind of guy who would make Lost at Sea, not the kind of guy who would make Ready Player One and then make Scott Pilgrim. Like, you need the foundation of, like, a pretty, like, earnest and, like, emotionally attuned guy to to make that book and have it not be, like, painful to revisit 10 years on. Yeah, And I think that the movie, you know, it still has a lot of that DNA. It still has, like, a bit of the... And, you know, maybe we should dig into this a little deeper that like the whole like arc of scott in the movie it's like it gets there i think like i think the the central sort of idea that like we need to understand that scott is not a good guy we need to like have him own up to his wrongdoings and things like that you know you have the moment with him and kim yeah but it's all it's all like implied though right like even the thing with him and kim like she doesn't even respond to that she just smiles and and when he says like i'm sorry about me because we don't have any of the kim backstory it's sort of like well for what about you and and like i think a lot of his other stuff just kind of gets like lumped into that one scene with julie where she's like what about that thing with lisa what about that thing with holly what about that thing with so-and-so like what about kim um where it's like you know it's heavily implied but we don't see any of it and so for him to say like sorry about all that stuff for us as the audience we're like well what stuff like we still don't really know yeah and i think that that i think that rather than that being a choice on the part of the movie i think that that's just a necessity yeah by virtue of having it be more truncated because you know like i said the thing that gets sacrificed here is the slice of life and that makes it difficult because so much of the climax comes around him sort of uh, like making good on his relationships right. and sort of understanding himself more in that way. And so when you, when so little of the movie is focused on his internality going up to that point that is maybe where it suffers. Yeah, I think that part of it as well is like, like I mentioned, I don't really see the movie Scott Pilgrim as being conceived of someone who is like capable of experiencing pain in some ways, it, at least in a way that's not at least at some level ironic and funny. And so it's like, well how can we buy into the like the story of him learning like empathy and taking ownership for his actions? Like I I don't believe that he knows what it feels like for him to hurt other people because it It doesn't seem like he is, like, fully capable of being hurt by other people. Yeah, and, you know, even the moment when they break up, it's more about his frustration and sort of him, like, being snippy than it really is about, like, any, like, fundamental issue in their relationship exactly. Like, obviously the exes are, like, a big part, but, you know, it doesn't feel like their relationship is, like, falling apart or that it's, like kind of like like in the way that it is in I think the third volume where it's like oh like I know what it is like to like go through this like sort of like doldrum phase of a relationship and to sort of dislike each other in a frustrating sort of way you you get a little bit of that but not a lot and we didn't talk really about Ramona which I think we should uh, at the end where she does go back to Gideon rather than in the book where it's like I was with my dad. Mm-hmm. She has this chip in the back of her neck that it's, allows yeah, Gideon to half-baked. control her. <laughs> <laughs> And it, you know, like we talked about this on the last episode, that it makes in some ways it makes sense that this is like the direction you would go. And I think like sort of to the point of like a, a positive point for Brian Leomalia is like it would be easy to go in that direction and it makes sense, but he sort of chose to reject that. And it has its own problems because you feel like the narrative sort of naturally leading you there. And so, so him breaking from that does create some problems on that side of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we see the alternative in the movie (laughs) and I think it is much less effective. And, you know, like I said, it literally puts Ramona on the sideline for most of, the final climax like you literally have her standing there watching them fight Yeah, Yeah. well like her brain control chip thing doesn't even fall off until like after gideon is dead so it's like how can you how can you buy into her like getting over gideon when she like literally until the moment of his death she was still like under his thrall yeah i think I think the big problem with it is less that it's less effective than the book and more that it's like, it's the contradiction that the book manages to avoid. And so by leaning into the contradiction of it, that like makes it more frustrating that Ramona, we talked about in the last episode, her arc is sort of that she needs to like find some stability and stop running away from her problems and things like that and it never fully the movie never fully like reprimands her for that yeah, well it can see the like, happy ending as like ramona's running away but like scott's gonna scott's run going with, with her. her yeah and yeah i think that that is a serious problem because um sorry i'm just thinking of the way to phrase this women be shopping <laughs> what you don't know women be shopping I know women be shopping at not oh, know what don't relevance all? it holds here. <laughs> <laughs> keep that <Don't>. in. <laughs> now we have to keep that in. Um, no, but I think that sort of the, that it, it, she can't resist. I, I just, that part always makes me sort of feel a little icky that it's like, I can't resist him. And it's like, that is what your character arc is that, and it's sort of all that stuff about like, I loved him and he ignored me. That like that that is an element that is referenced in the book, mm-hmm. but it's more about how like sad Gideon is right. than it is about Ramona's sort of like self her her personal character arc. Yeah. Like the movie almost weirdly like gets Gideon more than it gets Ramona. Like the whole the whole thing about like do you know how long it took me to get that contact information to put this league together to Hours. It's like a very good, like Gideon style line uh that, like, is is in keeping with him as the sort of like, uh, like alternate universe Scott that we see in the book. Yeah, I guess maybe he is more of more of a nega Scott in that he is like in the movie than he is Scott. in the book. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I think again it it I think the fundamental problem is just like all the characterizations just pale in comparison to the book because we don't have the page time right and you know even Gideon who only gets introduced in the last book he at least gets like 20 pages Mm -hmm. where it's just him talking yeah and like someone who he complained was like underdeveloped or like there wasn't enough to him But like everyone he has he has like as much time as every other character in the movie, I guess, is the problem. So it's not that, oh, Gideon's so much like better developed in the movie. It's just that like everyone else is kind of pulled down to his level of development. Yeah, maybe that is it. And so, like, I feel like we never like what are we supposed to take away from Ramona? Like, what are we supposed to think of her exactly? Like, why? I don't know. It just doesn't all jive together for me yeah i guess like we don't really ever see like if if the book is as much about like scott maturing as it is about him like learning not to like idealize her as this mystery girl i guess in the movie she just never really stops like being the mystery girl yeah exactly we never uh, we never get to see you know the stuff like her friendship with wallace and her sort of like she has a friendship with kim that sort of blossoms in the last couple of volumes And we just, we never get, like I said, we never get to see anyone be normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so like, (laughs) I think that is what hurts it where it's like, well, Ramona is like this, this, and this, but then she's also just like a person who has conversations with people about things. And just, we never get to see anyone be a person who has conversations with people about things. And I think that that is maybe like the right of it, that he is interested in having like such heightened characters and having it be so joke-forward and all of that stuff. like I think that is his influence on on the screenplay, especially. Yep. Agreed. So, Awards Talk. This was shortlisted for Best Visual Effects at the Academy Awards. It should be said, like this was a pretty broadly well-received movie. Yeah, it like, was a I think, critical darling. Yeah, and obviously, like I think with its audience... People oh well, yes, it. yeah. I mean, you gotta, yeah. you gotta have the initial audience buy in. At like, regardless of how small that audience might have been, you can't have a cult hit if the original people who saw it weren't like, "This is amazing. Why isn't anyone talking about it?" Yeah, like I'm, I'm just seeing here that like Kevin Smith said he was really into mm-hmm. it, and that like Quentin Tarantino <laughs> and, he, and Jason is, Reitman were into it. This know is why have stuff I about Tarantino. Yeah, so, so Tarantino. I also read this, and Tarantino, I have heard many times, puts together his, like, favorite movies of the year lists every year, and I have heard that these are sometimes crazy. (laughs) So I saw this this thing that Kevin Smith said that he had heard from Tarantino, that he loved it, and, like, I also read somewhere that... um, Edgar Wright had like consulted with Tarantino about how to manage the action in some of the more like complicated scenes and things like that. And so I was like, I wonder if this was on Tarantino's uh, best of 2010 list. It was not, but uh, just couldn't edge out, kick ass and uh, get him to the Greek. Oh boy. Uh, Yeah. I mean, 2010, it's an interesting movie year. I tend to think of that, this sort of period as a bit of a, dip in the overall like (laughs) quality of movies Mm -hmm. from like around 2010 to 2015 kind of range i tend to think of as like not as good as 2016 to 2020 oh um sorry i'm just seeing that jason reitman has a grammy for what i will let you know looking at jason schwartzman i am not looking at jason jason schwartzman i am looking at jason reitman anyways um of course i think most people would agree like the most important movie of this year is the social network uh you know that one has pretty much to the test of time Uh, i'll I'll run you down the best picture nominees the grammy Uh, is for the juno soundtrack carry on sure uh the king's speech wins best picture and then the other nominees are 127 hours black swan the fighter inception the kids are all right the social network toy story 3 true grit and winter's bone so like a pretty good list i would say i didn't realize that 127 hours came out this year i thought that that movie came out in like 2015 for some reason oh weird well the revenants 2015 that's sort of the same idea uh (laughs) kind of uh, yeah, I mean, like, this is a 10 nominees year when, you know, like, this is, like, just when they started doing mm-hmm. 10 nominees, and before they were, like, it's at least 5 and up to 10, and so they had to do 10, <laughs> and so I think that's how you get, like, stuff like, the kids are all right making it in, and, like, Winter's Bone, I don't think it's nominated for Best Picture, at least. Yeah, this was shortlisted for Best Visual Effects, which Inception wins, which, like, sure, I think that that is going to win in most years. Mm-hmm. Um, Other nominees, Alice in Wonderland, Hmm. a famously terrible-looking movie that everyone hates. (laughs) Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, sure. Iron Man 2, sure. And Hereafter, the Matt Damon fantasy movie. I'm not sure what the visual effects are in that movie. Well, they had to make him small. You're thinking of downsizing. But what? (laughs) Uh yeah so no no academy awards no uh Uh, the academy did have a screening a like 10th anniversary screening during the pandemic that a bunch of people attended and i read (laughs) this article that was basically like why is the academy screening this movie that was not even nominated (laughs) well that's the whole thing is this is a thing i have with the academy twitter where it'll be like the academy twitter because like the academy twitter tries to like be plugged into film twitter right and so, and so it like, sometimes has to act like it knew about movies that were like completely unacknowledged by the academy yeah and that, like everyone loved at the time or like you know that like film people loved at the time but like that the academy like famously did not even begin to acknowledge that's so like happy birthday Sophia coppola we love you like marie <laughs> antoinette is a masterpiece and it's like you guys didn't like marie antoinette uh, i guess marie antoinette maybe got some nominations but like you see a lot of that where right. it's like you guys love like timothy chalamet now <laughs> <laughs> we are told that we should love this so we acknowledge that we do well I, that's another bad example because he was nominated for best actor which is a pretty cool nomination but anyway <laughs> you get the idea <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're like happy birthday scott pilgrim versus the world we're hosting a screening where brie larson michael Sarah, and uh uh, uh who's that i guess it's probably edgar right oh no it was chris chris evans um are all gonna like come hang out and talk about it which is also like of the three people to get i mean i guess it makes sense because Brie that Larson, the most famous, yeah, and like Larson Brie Larson an is right Oscar. there, like uh, not too far behind him, I would say. And then the yeah, star, for sure. Michael Sarah's wife looks enough like Kate McKinnon that it's quite throwing. <laughs> okay. just If anyone's wondering, give <laughs> give a hit the old uh, Michael Sarah wife Google image search. Michael Sarah wasn't the wife. Michael Sarah um, wife. Michael Sarah life. Sure. Uh, I have my top six of this year, which are True Grit, The Social Network, Inception, The Other Guys, Unstoppable, the Tony Scott Train movie, Mm -hmm. but not that one, the other one. Uh, And then Scott Pilgrim, I think, would be six. Uh Uh, Like I said, this is a movie that has sort of continuously, like, it's on, like, a downward slope, sadly, (laughs) in, like, my estimation. I watched it a couple of years ago and was like, this really holds up. And I do think it really holds up still as, like, a piece of filmmaking, but having, like I said, having just read the comic, I think that it holds up less favorably in that light than it does when you're just like, I'm watching a movie. Mm -hmm. Jason Reitman's career, very weird. Yeah. That's what happens when you're in nepotism, baby. You can just sort of do whatever you want, and then you get to direct a Ghostbusters movie. (laughs) Well, that, I mean, he saved my childhood. He gave it back to the fans, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, he yeah, it did is... Tully. Yeah. Crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, quite, quite significantly. Hence my reaction. He did Tully. Question mark. Yeah, explanation point. Tully. Um. But yes, that. <laughs> of course, an uh, Academy Award nominee for Best Director, Jason Reitman. Uh, I think that that will do it for us is there anything else you wanted to discuss before we uh yeah i just hit the bricks i have to highlight that according to wikipedia up in the air is the movie for which jason reitman was nominated for best director is a story centered on a traveling corporate downsizer which to me sounds more like a matt david joint <laughs> 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 and that's all i have to say about that opa Forest Gump style. that's that on that as drake's father once said <laughs> uh tolly was written by diablo cody yeah okay that makes more sense and he was also nominated for juno for best director it's just to fact check you in a couple of areas right sorry i should have said a picture for which (laughs) multiple time best director (laughs) nominee i want to i want to really quickly run down uh because we didn't like dive deep on the plot just run down some of the names kieran culkin thumbs up right yeah Chris Evans, I think, is, like, weirdly oh, yeah. the best performer. He's, like, almost unrecognizable he, in a weird way. Yeah, he's more recognizable now. I feel like at the time, or, or like, when I when I went back to it later, I was more like, whoa, that's Chris Evans? Yeah, he does not look like himself. He he's. Um, I feel like he is more recognizable now that I have seen him in a lot more stuff sure, that's yeah, not yeah, Captain yeah. America. Sure, yeah. Um, Anna Kendrick, I think, is, like... the the unsung hero of this movie in some ways like i think that she is the right vibe for it i think this is like one of the better uses of anna kendrick in a movie i would argue uh i don't know if i'd go that far but she's good for sure uh brie larson uh, it still does not make an impact really for me in this yeah i i do like her overall but once i started thinking about it more i am like well she is kind of just oh yeah for like every line and i do think that the scene the phone call scene is so much better in the comic than in the movie of just yeah but that's just like nothing you can do about that that's not her fault Uh, um but i think she's good overall Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if you want to talk about a character who gets underserved by the movie, I think Kim Pine would be way up there. But I think Alison Pill's really good. She is sort of more, like, she she kind of has some of, like, what Kim Pine has. Like, the sort of underlying, like, empathy... But I think it's more about how like she just it's like she has a soft interior like yeah. beneath her hardened exterior. She's it's it's tricky because not only is Kim so underwritten, but Kim's like simmering rage at Scott is used as like a gag so many times that it's hard to like how can you possibly convey the the like the soft interior when every single line you have is like a sardonic quip and then all of your like non-dialogue cut two shots are you like scowling (laughs) Um, and shooting yourself in the head yeah so so yeah she falls into the camp of and she's doing what they're asking her to do i don't think that what they're asking her to do is a good service of the character sure uh aubrey plaza doing the aubrey plaza thing yeah i she she didn't really hit for me i gotta say although like as a as a, like a casting for Julie, she is smart, but yes, like she's barely that, in it. That's right. Um, Brandon Routh, I think, is great casting. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. He another guy who was like borderline unrecognizable in this. He he is really good. I think if I was having to choose between him and Chris Evans in this, I would have a hard time making my choice. Yeah, I mean, he also just like those guys are sort of almost helped by. Having smaller roles because they're not asked to do as much, and yeah. so they can just be funny. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, I think, is very good and very well <laughs> cast. Yes, I, I agree on both fronts. Love the character. Johnny Simmons, I think, is like weirdly quite good. Uh, yeah, he's good. Um, again, like barely in it. He's in the show Girl Boss. There you have it. The, like I'm looking down the list here. Like, no one's bad in this movie, really, other than, as I said, I'm not crazy about either Michael Sarah or Mary Elizabeth Winstead, which is unfortunate because they're the two main characters. But everyone Mm. else, like, we're getting pretty deep in the rotation before I'm like, well, we're crediting Tennessee Thomas as Lynette Geico, a character who does not speak and barely appears yeah i mean yeah that's like some real some real deep cut stuff i mean like i've got a netflix notification announcement the lincoln lawyer is now on netflix (laughs) okay all right carry on (laughs) it's a tv Uh, series though i'm seeing what there's a lincoln lawyer netflix original tv series what no, we can't talk about this right <laughs> now. It's too, it's too deep. We'll, we'll um, do this on the Lincoln Lawyer episode. <laughs> sure. One thing I did want to bring up, just because I think it's very funny, is Tom Jane and Clifton Collins as yes. the vegan police. Well, one the, the my- vegan police is a, like maybe the number one example of a thing that is funny in the comic, but gets punched up so hard in the movie that... like. Yeah, I think I think that when people think about Scott Pilgrim and it's like, quick, like Scott Pilgrim best joke, like vegan police is like one of the first things people think of. Yeah, milk and eggs, bitch. Yeah, is iconic. One of the one of the iconic lines for yeah, and maybe that's what it is. Is like the more overtly silly stuff that like was always designed to be silly that it can like get punched up and be really funny, mm-hmm. and then it's like the characters who and like you know the Lucas Lee stuff is really funny. We talked about Brandon Routh being really good, and then it's more the when. People have to like not just be that that yeah. it sort of falters a little. Um, and my my biggest laugh always when I watch this movie is after they de-veganize Todd and like they and like Scott is like standing there and they are like walking away <laughs> yeah. and do, like <laughs> high five high <laughs> five on their way back to their like cop car. <laughs> always really makes me laugh. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say that that is the end of the episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. Next week, we'll be talking about seconds, right? Yep, the forthcoming Blake Lively joint. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Did she did she direct The Rhythm Section, a movie that <laughs> was like the definition of doesn't exist? Uh, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, maybe no she did not uh, directed no, by Andrew direct morano released in 2020 i f- want to predict now filmed in 2015 or 16 <laughs> i'm not clicking sure. through to production no 2017 filming began yeah i think this is her first directorial project other than the music video for taylor swift's <laughs> i bet you think about me from brackets taylor's version brackets from the vault is that it's featuring chris stapleton is that the one that's like 10 minutes long no that's all too well i bet you think about me is just like she with these re-releases she includes like tracks that were written for the record but never recorded Mm -hmm. and will like record them and release them as bonus tracks And one of them is this song with Chris Stapleton that Blake Lively did the music video for. I see. Which I remember being fine. I believe Miles Teller is in it. From Too Old to Die Young. (laughs) And Top Gun Maverick. (laughs) uh, An Ed Brubaker joint. You want to do it? we got we got to do a yeah, So young we'll talk about it later it's, it's so, so long item. it's that's a big commitment <laughs> and it's like harrowing also no spoilies about any future forthcoming uh, miniseries sure sure sure. um do we want to just do a tight two on how good top gun maverick's gonna be uh it's gonna be amazing i can't believe (laughs) so many people recently have said to me there's no way that's gonna be good right and i'm just like are you high no way that's gonna (laughs) be bad It literally could not be bad like now i'm biased as like uh uh the kind of person who is like really into planes for no good reason and not not even not even like the respectable kind of two into planes where i like care about the history or like the specifications or play like realistic flight simulators or anything like that strictly in the way that when i see a jet i'm like oh cool (laughs) Yeah. So when's the last time you watched Top Gun? I watched Top Gun probably six months ago. Um I've watched it since they announced Top Gun Maverick, I've probably watched it like four times because each <laughs> each time thinking like, well, it's about to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, but that movie I feel like we've talked about on the podcast how many times Top Gun has been <laughs> rescheduled. It just, it's the kind of movie that I'm like, oh, a featurette about how like Tom Cruise got access to like a military plane that like no civilian has ever flown. Yeah, could definitely going to read that. And then, yeah, like I said, it could, it could be like five hours of just like aerobatics. And I would be like, this is the greatest movie of 2022. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Top Gun one of our swaggier movies. Yeah. And I just feel like our swaggier stars, like, yeah. Top gun, one of our swaggier movies, Tom Cruise, one of our swaggier stars, Tom Cruise, already a guy who knew how to fly planes, Top Gun Maverick, a movie where, because Top Gun is so swaggy and the military is like, (laughs) Oh, uh, corporate propaganda. You say (laughs) they're like, yeah, we'll let Tom Cruise like do whatever he wants with like military (laughs) jets. And like, let you use like all of these different planes to do whatever like we'll put Tom Cruise in the cockpit with a like trained Navy pilot so that you can get these like reaction scenes of him pulling eight G's like, sure. And so I'm just like, how can you have that combination of like Tom Cruise, especially at this point in his career, planes that are this cool. And then like this level of access to them by like the only institution on the planet that could possibly grant it. And like ever believe that it's not going to be just like a spectacle for the ages. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's what, that's how I feel about Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> I'm pretty much in the same boat. Uh, wait, there are reviews out? Oh my gosh. Hold on, hold on, hold on. As I've said many times, the only review I need is a close-up shot of a jet engine like flaring while the afterburner goes... Well, how about... 90 reviews on Rotten Tomato. 97%! Let's go! (laughs) I reiterate, that movie cannot possibly be bad. It's... Like, it's impossible. (laughs) Critics' consensus, Top Gun Maverick pulls off off a feat even trickier than a 4G inverted dive, Mm. delivering a long belated sequel that surpasses its predecessor in wildly entertaining style! Okay, we need to end the episode. Yeah, absolutely, but... We love Top Gun Maverick. We will be uh, shortly off mic discussing which IMAX theater to go see it in, I have no <laughs> doubt. Uh, sure. But until next time, I'm seizing the <laughs> seizing the reins here. We had to, you had to tell people to follow oh, us yeah, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. Follow us on I Twitter. I got the runs pod on Twitter. Uh, Gottherunspod at gmail.com. Uh, I assume we will have received tons of emails since we begged people to send us emails last episode. <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening. And until next time, to to be be continued.